Good morning and welcome to Crossroads, if you didn't realize where you are by now. Um, uh, it's great to see especially um, students back from your summer holidays, as we say in England, um, and also uh, any freshmen, I guess, who might be here with us for the uh, first time. My name is Neil Martin. Uh, I'm the associate pastor here, and it's my privilege today to lead us into our new series for the fall, uh, which is going to be in the book of Exodus. Now, for those of you who are new, um, I guess that makes this Sunday a particularly good Sunday to be joining us because it's going to give you somewhat a a chance to see what makes us tick here as a church. Uh, You see, our passion uh, is to uh, understand and be transformed by God's word as he moves among us by his spirit. That's really uh, what it's about. Our goal is to spend a good chunk of our time each Sunday that we gather uh, sitting under the teaching of the Bible, uh, working our way more often than not through complete Bible books Uh, in the conviction that these are the very words of God uh, and that they contain everything that we need for life and godliness. And many of us have got that testimony in our lives, haven't we? Uh, That God has provided for us and led us wisely and kindly through his word. Uh, You might recall the story in Luke's gospel um, uh, on the road to Emmaus where Jesus gently kind of rebukes his disciples for their slowness to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Uh, And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, it says, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, I hope that all of us have that kind of, oh, that we were there. Well, that's what we're about here as a church. We want to hear the voice of Jesus today as he continues to open up the scriptures, as he continues to point us towards himself all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, we want to hear him and by ch- be changed by what the Bible has to say about him. And that's uh, basically the, uh, the motivation which is leading us now into the book of Exodus. Many of us, of course, are going to know this book quite well. Uh, Exodus is the place from which many of the Bible's most famous stories uh, and uh, its most foundational kind of little narratives come, isn't it? Uh, the plagues of Egypt, uh, the parting of the Red Sea... Water from the Rock, the Ten Commandments, the Golden Calf. Uh, I guess we can picture all of this stuff, complete with uh, images in our mind of Moses looking strangely like Charlton Heston. Uh, Exodus is also the place where many of the most uh, important institutions and rituals of the Old Testament uh, come onto our radar for the first time. The Passover Festival, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Tabernacle pitched in the desert. It's all here. And our task over the next several months is really just going to be to unpack this stuff, uh, to set it in its proper context, uh, and uh, to show its meaning, I guess, in the light of the larger story that God wants to uh, teach and to draw out the implications for us as believers today. So I hope that you're uh, feeling a a draw to that. Uh, We are really excited about it as a teaching team. Uh, uh, We're going to move along at a fast but not a breakneck pace this time. Um, roughly one or two chapters a week. Um, Many of our house churches are going to be following along at the same pace, so there are going to be plenty of opportunities for you to kind of keep pace with the story in your own time. I think you'll find out on the uh, connection table that there's a printed sheet which has all of the the passages that we can go through week by week. To get you roughly oriented here at the start, though, uh, I think you'll find it helpful to see the book of Exodus dividing into three pieces, three broad chunks Uh, The first piece runs from chapter 1 to chapter 18. And that basically takes Israel from Egypt to Sinai. Uh, From there we move into a second chunk, 
that runs from chapter 19 through chapter 34. And when you get into it, you realize it's giving us a kind of dramatized recap of the whole of the Bible story so far. And then in our third chunk, we have uh, that runs from chapter 35 through 40. Uh, That describes the establishment of this tent that God pitched for himself in the desert, the tabernacle. As a teaching team, we've not settled exactly just yet how fast we're going to do those second and third chunks. Um, But that first one, uh, we're aiming to have done by Christmas. So that's good news, right? We should uh, all be out of Egypt and standing in the desert in front of Mount Sinai by the end of the semester. (laughs) So um, let's get started. Uh, Now we're we're blessed by the fact that Exodus actually has its own introduction, so we don't need to provide a whole bunch of context. Um, It has an overture uh, at the start, uh, which... uh, kind of highlights for us the material that's coming down the pike at us. Um, It begins at chapter 1, verse 1, and runs to chapter 2, verse 10, and that is uh, our text for today. So let's stand together for the reading of God's word, and uh, we're going to go at this. So Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 1, and I'm going to read through to chapter 2, verse 10, so it's quite a long chunk here. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all and Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful They multiplied greatly, they increased in numbers, and they became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour, And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God. And they did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous. They give birth before the midwives even arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile. But he let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds on the bank of the Nile. His sister, 
stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby, and he was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go home and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother, Pharaoh's daughter, said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is God's word. Let's uh, take our seats here and pray as we begin. Great God in heaven, it is our conviction that your word provides everything that we need for life and godliness. Uh, not just the, uh, the familiar parts of it, but also the, uh, the less accessible parts of it. Lord God, this is, uh, I guess, familiar to us in a sense, in that it's a, a well-known Sunday school story. Uh, but maybe we don't necessarily know how to live in the light of it. And it's our prayer this morning that you might write that on our hearts with the power of your spirit, uh, that we might be changed, that we might be transformed, that we might come to delight in you more, uh, that we might come to honour you and follow you uh, more uh, earnestly. Uh, God, we pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, everybody ready? Want get to get to grips with this? Let's, um, let's get started here. The first thing I want us to see as we begin this journey into the book of Exodus is that God choreographed these introductory events here very carefully. As the curtain rises, we find the scene is set in Egypt. Uh, what in the world are the Israelites doing there? Well, that requires uh, just a bit of a recap, doesn't it, from the concluding chapters of Genesis, uh, where we read that Jacob and all his sons relocated to Egypt uh, from Canaan uh, because of a famine. Uh, should be uh, all very familiar to us if we've heard Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, Joseph's brothers intended to harm him, right? By selling him into slavery. But God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. God sent Joseph into Egypt uh, and elevated him to this position of influence there uh, before famine ever, he- ever hit Canaan, before they even knew what was coming. Uh, so that when his family's need became acute, Uh, his father and brothers would find help in a new home there. By the time our story begins, that's where the people of Israel have been for 400 years. But now, of course, change is afoot. And to set the stage for that change, our text makes three key introductions. I want you to just uh, get these clear in your mind. First of all, it introduces us to the main antagonist in the story, the wicked king of Egypt, who's simply known as Pharaoh. Second... It introduces us to the main protagonist in the story, uh, God's chosen rescuer, Moses. And third, it's going to briefly introduce us to what happens when the antagonist and the protagonist collide. And that's basically the story of the first half of this great book. So let's see those three things here in turn. First of all, chapter 1, verses 8 to 22, provide us with our introduction to Pharaoh. And it's not very flattering, is it? Poor old Pharaoh. In fact, in 
if this whole thing wasn't so familiar to us as a bedtime Bible story, uh, I think what we read in this section would be deeply shocking, wouldn't it? Because read at first value, this sounds more like an indictment presented at the International Court of Human Rights than it does a promising start point for a Sunday school curriculum. Just step through the details with me here for a minute. In verse 8, the very first thing we learn about Pharaoh is that all the ways in which his nation had been blessed by their association with God's people in the past meant nothing to him. Remember, it wasn't just Jacob and his sons who benefited from the fact that God sent Joseph down to Egypt, right? The whole Egyptian nation was blessed by Joseph's God-given foresight. The people of Egypt had food to eat while their neighbours starved. Talk about praying for the prosperity of Babylon. Pharaoh might not have even had a kingdom to rule if God had not sent Joseph down there in advance and blessed him through his promise-keeping towards these uh, children of Abraham. But none of that got any traction on uh, Pharaoh's heart at all, did it? You see, as human beings, we have short memories. What we were calling out to God in prayer for so desperately last year seems to us to kind of somehow be an entitlement now, doesn't it, now that it's actually happened? Rarely turn back and actually thank God for the remarkable things that he's done in our lives. 400 years had passed since Joseph had served as an advisor to Pharaoh's ancestors, and any thought of gratitude for what God had done for them through him was long gone by the time we reach Exodus 1. The people of Israel then are not a blessing in the mind of this Pharaoh. Uh, They're a problem. They've become too numerous for us, he says. Uh, If war breaks out, they will join our enemies. They will fight against us and leave the country. Hmm? I wonder what you think of his logic there. Certainly hear these kind of statements in our modern immigration debate, don't we? I know I hear this kind of stuff when I catch the news from England. Migrants from Eastern Europe have become too numerous for us. They're taking all our jobs, using our services. And yet it's striking, isn't it, who's making that case here in Exodus and where the whole thing leads. These opinions are found on the lips of Pharaoh, whose function in this story is to show us what it looks like to be as far away from the heart of God as you could possibly be. Pharaoh says, we need to be shrewd with these people. No problems there, right? In Matthew's Gospel, even Jesus says we need to be shrewd. It isn't a sin to carefully assess our relational capital uh, when we're dealing with people who oppose us. It's not a sin to think carefully about the likely consequences of our actions when we're working through tricky relational situations. But look at where all this shrewdness leads Pharaoh in our text. Uh, No doubt his peers were impressed with his political acumen, uh, but the blunt reality of it was, uh, was this. Pharaoh basically used his power as a leader to forcibly enslave the Israelites. He took away their freedom. He compelled them to work for him as laborers building these massive store cities of uh, Ramesses and Pithon, which you can still see in the archaeology of Egypt. How did he think this would solve the problem? Well, it's hard to know. Perhaps he hoped that this demonstration of raw power would just convince the Israelites that siding with his enemies would be a really bad plan. Um, But maybe he just hoped to overwork and malnourish them to the point where they just kind of started to wither uh, under the attrition of it all. But the thing that the book of Exodus really wants us to see is that whatever his intention actually was, however shrewdly he thought he was dealing with the dangers that he thought he saw ahead, uh, the result was a total bust, wasn't it? 
In verse 12, we read that the more he oppressed the Israelites, the more they multiplied and spread, uh, so that the Egyptians came to dread them. His whole plan completely backfired. So you would think, wouldn't you, at this point in the story, that Pharaoh would have stopped and uh, kind of considered changing his strategy. I brought some of his experts in and said, hey, well, this isn't working. Let's think of something different. His own particular brand of shrewdness hadn't achieved what he'd intended. Uh, In fact, it had achieved the exact opposite. Uh, So you'd think that he would have been open to reconsider. Uh, But that's not the way that this pharaoh or the pharaoh who we're going to meet later on in the story uh, operates. If this pharaoh's particular brand of shrewdness doesn't work, his response is just to apply it more and more. And in the process, of course, its thin veneer of political acumen starts to wear away and we see what's really going on underneath, don't we? Verses 13 to 16 show us Pharaoh's response. On the one hand, it's more of the same. The enslavement of the Israelites is just intensified. Uh, He works them ruthlessly now, forcing them out into the fields, assigning to them the hardest tasks involved in all of this building that he has planned working with uh, bricks and mortar. But on the other hand, he's also uh, turning to something more sinister now, isn't he? If hard labour wasn't enough to slow down the growth of the Israelite nation, perhaps infanticide might do the trick. So keeping his attentions covert, he calls these two women to him, these midwives who serve the Israelite community, uh, and he orders them to kill every male child that they deliver. That's pretty shocking stuff, isn't it? Again, because it's so familiar, we find it hard to just digest what's going on here. But just think about the scale of the international outcry if it turned out like something like that was happening in Syria right now. It's barbaric. But once again, the book of Exodus wants us to see that not even that repressive measure actually delivers the benefits that Pharaoh hopes for. So he's frustrated once again. You see, at this point in the story, we get our first glimpse of uh, what God-inspired resistance to Pharaoh really looks like. Um, The Hebrew midwives that he tries to co-opt here just refuse to play his game. In verse 17, we read that the Hebrew midwives feared God. But that wasn't the only person they feared. I suspect they were scared out of their minds by Pharaoh. But the point of the book of Exodus is making here is that they feared God more. They cared more about giving an answer before God in the end for their behaviour than they cared about giving an answer to Pharaoh. And so they ended up doing something incredibly brave. Because resistance here is only heading in one direction, logically, isn't it? A man who's persuaded himself that it's shrewd to wipe out an entire generation of Israelite baby boys is clearly not going to miss a couple of midwives who just happen to get in his way. And yet look what happens here. Do you see a pattern emerging? Pharaoh gets the very opposite of what he's looking for again. The continuing growth of the Israelite nation seems like a curse to him, doesn't it? And the more he tries to curse them, the more he's cursed. The worse it gets. The same thing works the other way around as well, doesn't it? See, the Israelite midwives set themselves to bless God's people, even at the risk of their own lives. And yet, as they bless others... They themselves are blessed. They don't just survive this experience against all the odds, do they? They're blessed with children themselves. Did you spot that? Pharaoh, of course, summons them back and he asks them why they failed to obey his orders. But here I think his very shrewdness creates the loophole through which the Israelite midwives 
escape. Their, their explanation sounds a bit far-fetched to us, doesn't it? Israelite ladies are not like Egyptian ladies. They give birth really, really quickly, and we just can't get there in time. Now, if we were Pharaoh, I'm sure that we would have all been thinking, well, hold on a minute, ladies. You know, why do you need midwives at all if that's true? <laughs> but Pharaoh uh, has drunk so deeply of this whole narrative of uh, suspicion about these Israelite migrants that are... Uh, uh, you know, thinking how different they are and how they might or might not destabilize his country in the future, that he sees this explanation provided by the Hebrew midwives as just another confirmation of what he suspected all along, doesn't he? The Israelites are not quite properly human. They're weird. They're alien. They're dangerous. And so all of this culminates in verse 22. Consistently, when faced with the failure of his plans to slow down the growth of Israel... And to reduce this threat that he believes that they pose, Pharaoh reaches back into the same old tool bag and he comes out with the same old tools. And one last time it happens here. No longer do we simply have slavery. No longer do we simply have slavery plus a covert attempt to murder Israelite children. Now we have an overt state-sponsored genocide where the people of Egypt themselves are now invited to take the lives of their Hebrew neighbours' sons by throwing them into the Nile. So, uh, so much then for our antagonist, Pharaoh. Uh, but the next part of our text much more briefly introduces to us the main human protagonist of the story, Moses. The transition is kind of very filmic, isn't it? It, it suits our sensibilities now. Uh, chapter 1 gives us this kind of sweeping panorama of the Egyptian state. Pharaoh in his throne room, uh, evaluating questions of national importance. Uh, thousands of enslaved Israelites hewing out stone in the hills, uh, building these vast granaries, dust, sand, whips and heat. We can kind of picture it all, can't we? But now at the beginning of chapter 2, we cut away from the national stage and we move to this very obscure little domestic scene in an Israelite home, the home of Moses' parents. And the author's intention with this shift, of course, is to make us very, very aware of the contrast. Moses' home is... Humble, his family are completely anonymous, the way that they're presented. And it leaves us wondering how anything coming from this kind of background could really have any relevance to the vast needs of the people that we've just seen at all. You know, how is anything that emerges from this spot that we've now turned our attention to going to get any traction on uh, the, the, uh, the doings of Pharaoh and all of his acolytes? But the author of Exodus wants us to see that in stark contrast to Pharaoh, this is actually the way that God gets things done. We've already seen it with the midwives, haven't we? The first act of rescue recorded in the book of Exodus is not accomplished by some swashbuckling Charlton Heston character. It's accomplished by two women with the courage to put obedience to God above obedience to Pharaoh. And that's the pattern that's repeated here, isn't it? It's Moses' mum who knows that Pharaoh is committed to the elimination of these Hebrew baby boys and she just refuses to comply. She hides Moses. And when he gets too big or too loud to be concealed, and I can tell you as the father of a three-month-old baby boy myself, both of those are live possibilities. Uh, (laughs) She puts him in the Nile, kind of as instructed, but in a basket. The Hebrew word for that basket, teva, is used only in one other place in the Bible, uh, in the description of the ark in Genesis 6 through 9, through which God saved his people on the waters of the flood. 
And this is God's answer to the power and the shrewdness of this antagonist, Pharaoh. Moses is as weak and as vulnerable as he could possibly be here, placed in a basket. And yet he is the protagonist that God has prepared for a showdown uh, of uh, literally biblical proportions, right? And then, strange as it might seem, with Moses still a baby, actually that showdown is immediately previewed. Right here at the beginning of the book. I wonder whether you spotted it as we read along. See, the two worlds seem so far apart when the camera first cuts away from Pharaoh to Moses' home. Uh, Those two worlds collide, don't they? Unexpectedly. And we get just a glimpse of what can happen when God steps decisively onto the stage. Chapter 2, verse 5 tells us that immediately after Moses' mother places this little ark in the water with Moses in it, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the river to bathe. And that's important because powerful though Pharaoh and his family are, God is going to find a way to get through their defences and expose them at their most vulnerable point in this story. Bathing kind of gives us a metaphor for it here, doesn't it? Pharaoh's daughter is naked, stripped of all of her impregnability when she meets Moses for the first time. But her nakedness is internal as well as external, isn't it? Her heart is pricked when she sees this little baby in a basket. She feels sorry for him. You see, God doesn't need to wield human power himself to find the chinks in human power's armour, does he? He can melt human hearts, as he does here in the story. He can also shatter human hearts. When battle is joined in earnest later on in the chapters of Exodus, God is going to go right to Pharaoh's most vulnerable point as well. God is going to deprive that man of his firstborn son when the time comes for his own children to leave Egypt. Moses' sister Miriam has an unexpected little cameo role here, doesn't she, in this beautiful little sequence of dialogue that we get that so unexpectedly and so completely turns the tables on Moses' situation You see, going into this part of the story, the problems facing Moses' family are basically completely intractable, aren't they? The baby can't be concealed anymore. Pharaoh's edict is unavoidable. There's nothing that can be done. And yet with Miriam's brave and simple words to the princess, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew ladies to nurse the baby for you? The whole thing is completely transformed in a stroke, isn't it? It's absolutely brilliant. It's got God's fingerprints all over it. It's like Solomon threatening to divide the child in two with the sword. It's like Jesus' reaction to the woman caught in adultery in John's Gospel. Suddenly, with a word, the unresolvable is resolved. The hopelessly stuck is completely unstuck. The impossibly convoluted is made straight. In fact, it's better than straight, isn't it? Because uh, the princess offers to pay Moses' family to bring him up on her behalf. Just as we saw with the Israelite midwives here again. God blesses those who bless him, and he curses those who curse him. And that's what he's gearing up to do in this whole book of Exodus. God is going to confront Pharaoh with all his power, uh, using weak, flawed, improbable human people, and he's going to win. It's beautiful, isn't it? But if that is all we ended up seeing here in the introduction to Exodus... I want us to know that however interesting all of that stuff is, we'd still have gone away miserably shortchanged. God truly has arranged this text to introduce us to the antagonist in Exodus and to the chief human protagonist in Exodus and to show us what happens when their two worlds collide. 
Uh, But there's far greater significance to this introduction than we could ever imagine if our visibility was just constrained to this problem of Israel's enslavement to Pharaoh right here in the text. So that's where I want to take us for the remaining time that we've got here this morning. The key to it lies in asking ourselves whether we've ever heard anything quite like this before. Let me read you those apparently innocuous opening verses of the chapter again. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Does that sound familiar at all? It really should. For the Israelites who lived through these events and who read this account when it was first written, there would have been no missing the connection that was being made here in Moses' account. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, it says. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers. They became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Those are exactly the same words that God spoke to Adam at the very start of the story in Genesis 1.28 when he blessed him and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. That's God's original vision for humanity before the fall, when men and women would spread out as his representatives, modelling his goodness and kindness and creativity, extending the boundaries of the Garden of Eden to cover the entire surface of the earth. Now we all know that humanity turned around and snubbed that privilege, don't we? With horrible ingratitude, Adam and Eve refused to serve the God who'd give them everything they had. They thought that things would be a lot better, actually, if they were God. Despite the fact that everything they had came from him, their lives, their gifts, their relationship with each other, even the capability to make moral choices and decide whether to eat from the tree or not. That itself was a gift from God, wasn't it? They took it all for granted and just reached out to grasp more. They bit the hand that fed them in the most sickening way, and they were thrown out of the presence of God. They did that as our representatives. Actually, I think they represent us surprisingly well. Instead of being on the outside, partnering with God and extending his reign, they found themselves, and we find ourselves, on the outside, as part of the problem now that God has set himself to overcome And all was lost. At least it should have been. If God had not made a remarkable promise, the promise of the kingdom of God. In Genesis 3, God gave just a hint of it. A glimpse of a future rescuer who would one day crush the head of the serpent who led Adam and Eve astray. But as the story progresses, that message gets clearer and louder. In Genesis 9, after the flood, God blesses Noah and he says, Be fruitful. And increase in number. Fill the earth. Do you hear what God's really saying there? Genesis 12. God tells Abraham he's going to make him into a great nation. And that he will bless him and make him a blessing. And that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him. Now those just aren't just uh, idle words of encouragement that God is just kind of spitting out there. God is telling Abraham uh, that in his grace, Abraham now stands at the head of of a great plan, 
a bold plan, uh, an improbable plan, an incredible plan, a plan to buy back Eden and reclaim everything that was lost at the fall. In those words, God promises to re-establish his original vision of a garden stretching out across the entire earth in which goodness and kindness and creativity are the universal law. And he promises that Abraham and all those who are truly descended from him can be part of it. Somehow he'll find a way to bring us past the cherubim with the flaming swords. Somehow he'll find a way to bring us back inside. That's the promise that then dominates the rest of the book of Genesis. Will Abraham even have one son, let alone be the father of a nation? The whole thing hangs by the slenderest thread, doesn't it? And yet God provides and his promise stands. Immediately after the sacrifice of Isaac's story, it's there again if you've got ears to hear it. God says to Abraham, I swear by myself that because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations will be blessed because you have obeyed me. That's the promise that Isaac was so desperate to see passed on to Esau and Rebekah was so desperate to see passed on to Jacob. And that's the promise that still dominates Jacob's mind on his deathbed when he blesses his sons and tells Judah that the scepter will not depart from his family nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the one to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. And then the curtain goes down and Israel passes into silence. For 400 years they live as aliens in Egypt. The promise recedes into the shadows. Many people cease to believe that it will ever be fulfilled. And it's only if we understand that background that we're ready to hear the message that God is really communicating in the first chapter of Exodus. What the opening verses of Exodus tell us is that even after all this time, God has not forgotten his promise. Quite the opposite. God intended to keep it because against all the odds, despite infertility and famine and enslavement in a foreign land, God had made Abraham's descendants into a nation. And our text is shouting that at the top of its voice. When you get down into the details of the Hebrew here in our text, you find there are four separate allusions back to the great promise of Genesis 1.28. In verse 7 alone, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. It's kind of rubbing it in, isn't it? Those are exactly the same verbs that we find back in Genesis. It comes back again in verse 12 of our text. Did you see it? The more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Once again, exactly the same Hebrew verbs we find in Genesis 1.28. And it's back again in verse 20. The people increased and became even more numerous. Once again, exactly the same Hebrew verbs that we have in Genesis 1.28. God wants us to see that he's keeping his promise. And as we march through the Exodus story, we find that every facet of that promise has been remembered. In Genesis, God showed his people that their return to the garden would only come at the price of a great redeeming sacrifice, didn't he? In Exodus, we see that sacrifice prefigured in the Passover. In Genesis, God promised to bless Abraham so that he could bless others. He promised to come and be present with his people again 
and to rule over them once more. And in Exodus, we see it all fulfilled. God's presence returns to his people in the pillar of cloud and fire. God re-established his rule over them at Mount Sinai. In Genesis, God promised Abraham that he would bring his descendants back to live in the special place that he had marked out for them on earth. And at the end of the Exodus story, when we reach the book of Joshua, God does exactly that. This text is here, this book is here, to open our eyes and ears to the fact that when God makes a promise, he means every word of it, and he will not rest until it's fulfilled. Even if it takes hundreds, even if it takes thousands of years to do it. Friends, that's not something that any human being can do. Do you see that? We can't promise what will happen next year, can we? We can't take history as a canvas and paint a picture of the future on it. It's outside human capability. It's impossible. So if this is real, what we're reading here in our Bibles, this is incontestable evidence for the existence and the character of God. But even that is just dipping our toe in the water of uh, the true riches that are here in this first chapter of Exodus for believers today. You see, if we know our Bibles well, we shouldn't just know what happened before this text, back in Genesis. We should also know what happened after it, right? Immediately after the promise that God made to uh, his people in Genesis was all fulfilled in its entirety, it collapsed. In Judges 2, we read that uh, after Joshua and his whole generation died, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel, And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. All the elements of the promise that were so carefully, so painstakingly fulfilled over so many centuries were wiped out almost overnight. God's people were divided to the point of fighting a brutal civil war. God's place was overrun by the neighbouring Canaanite tribes. The Israelites rejected God's rule and they forfeited God's presence. The great symbol of God's presence within the Ark of the Covenant was captured by their arch enemies, the Philistines, and carried out of the land. For 400 years, the Israelites lurched downwards towards apparently certain annihilation. But then once again, God's determination to keep his promises changed the course of the story right at the point where it seems that Israel had gone over the cliff, never to be seen again. The narrative takes us to an anonymous family and to a faithful woman, Hannah, and the son of her prayers, Samuel, through whom God would establish the kingship that would see all the elements of the Genesis promise fulfilled again. Now, I don't want to get too far into this uh, details here, even though this is the very heart of our story. It gives me goosebumps just to think about it. Because the point, I hope, is clear enough already. Great though this Exodus story is, amazing though the implicit message of God's faithfulness to his promises is, none of it actually delivers on the ultimate content of what God pledged to Abraham, does it? As we go through this book, we're going to follow the Israelites out of Egypt with spectacular demonstrations of God's power and holiness. But none of it actually re-establishes Eden The people of Israel end up in the promised land, but they only enjoy it for a single generation before the whole thing collapses back into the chaos from which it emerged. Not even the kingship of David and Solomon saw the actual delivery of a new Eden, did it? Sure, we see God's people established once again in God's place, 
experiencing the blessings of his presence and his rule over them uh, in the temple and the law. But that time, the vision of God's promises fulfilled falls apart before Solomon has even died. Why? Is God powerful enough to overcome the likes of Pharaoh and the Philistines, but not powerful enough to finish the job? That's the way some people want to read it. But the Bible itself tells a different story. The Bible dares us to believe that what we read about in the Exodus and all that we read in the stories of the kings of Israel is actually merely a warm-up, merely a crude illustration of what God will actually do when the time comes to fulfil his promises for real. God said to Abraham that all the nations on earth would be blessed through him. And nothing like that was ever seen until the coming of Jesus Christ. And so at the end of our Old Testaments, we find ourselves where? The kingdom destroyed, the exiled Israelites uh, back in the land, but worshipping at a temple where the presence of God is stubbornly absent. 400 silent years follow. The promise recedes into the shadows. Many cease to believe that it will ever be fulfilled. And then God comes one final time to an anonymous family and to a faithful woman, Mary. And when the son of her prayers reaches manhood, he strides onto the stage and declares, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. So how are we to read the Exodus now in the light of this amazing story that God has written on the canvas of history itself? The answer is that we've got to read it the way that God intends it to be read. God crafted two great illustrations of what his kingdom would look like when it came in the Old Testament, in the Exodus and in the kingship of David and Solomon, to help us understand our circumstances as citizens of the kingdom now that it's actually come in the New Testament. The Exodus story is a story of redemption from slavery in Egypt. Brothers and sisters, it's in the Bible to teach us about our redemption from slavery to sin today. The Exodus is a story of God taking uh, the anonymous and the weak and working in them and even despite them to establish his reign in the world. Brothers and sisters, it's in the Bible to show us that that is still God's modus operandi and that he can use our anonymity and our weakness for the advance of his kingdom. Pharaoh is uh, in our story not just as a historical character from which we can learn some valuable lessons about toxic political leadership. Pharaoh is in the story as an emblem of the master that we are enslaved to unless we're redeemed and brought up and out to safety. Why is it that we were given all of these details of his downward spiral from shrewdness to coercion to enslavement and ultimately to mass murder? Because God is using this ancient story to show us what each and every one of us needs rescuing from. This is sin in us too, isn't it? Sin in us knows something of the way that God would have us go, and yet it prefers the shrewd alternative. Sure, you know the way that this works. God tells us something that we want to do is wrong, but we think, I'm smarter than that. It won't have any bad consequences. I don't need God to be my moral babysitter. I know what I'm doing. And then just like Pharaoh, if your experience is anything like mine, you find that actually there are consequences. And that obeying that sinful impulse leaves you in a worse place than the place that you started. 
And yet still, just like Pharaoh, you find that somehow you don't look back and question your approach. No, sin has no rearview mirror. No, in order to dig yourself out of the mess that you've made, you just order up more of the same sinful behaviour. And pretty quickly you find yourself going round the same destructive spiral that Pharaoh's life illustrates so well in our chapter, getting more and more locked in, more and more unable to escape. In James chapter 1 we read that each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived it gives birth to sin and after sin is full grown it gives birth to death. Well right uh, here on the pages of the Old Testament, here it is folks. And it poses the fundamental challenge of the gospel to us with fresh urgency, doesn't it? Do we really want to be under this kind of leadership? Do you want sin to really be calling the shots in your life when you can see here what it looks like? When it's presented as a choice of following in Pharaoh's footsteps or not, I know with all my heart I want out. As we read this Exodus story over the coming weeks, we're going to find that sin in us is everything that Pharaoh stands for. In this story, it's coercive, it's destructive, it's deaf to all correction. Sin is a slave driver. It won't be content till it's robbed you of the most precious things that you possess. There's a reason why the great epitome of rejecting God's lordship here in the story ends up losing his firstborn son. Exodus is going to open this stuff up for us in fresh ways. Some of us know our New Testament so well that the warnings it contains about the power and destructiveness of sin, I think, just wash off us like water off a duck's back. But the Exodus story won't let us get away with that. In Exodus, sin is exposed as this enslaving monster, this brutal, two-faced Darwinian force that wants to uh, nothing but our destruction. Exodus is going to show us that those who curse God are cursed. But of course, it's also going to show us that those who bless God are blessed. The believers in this story find strength right at their point of greatest weakness, don't they? The ordinary folk, the anonymous, inconsequential folk, the Hebrew midwives and Moses family choose to bless God when all the human logic favours just giving up, where there's no prospect that resistance is going to make any difference at all. And yet this story teaches us that God is just looking for that kind of obedience, that willingness to value his opinion more highly than the opinion of the world as his cue to break into the story with resources that dwarf our weakness and the strength of anything that might oppose us. And he hasn't changed a bit. And it isn't just the regular believers in the book of Exodus who show us uh, that working through weakness has the fingerprints of God all over it. Unbeknownst to almost everyone who matters here in this story, There comes a point in the opening chapters uh, where the entire hope of Israel, their future saviour himself, is found floating floating in a little wicker ark among the reeds of the Nile. And yet in that place of acute weakness and vulnerability, God finds a way to break through the armour of the very regime that opposes him. And all of that is pointing forwards too. The gospel is the story of God confronting strength with weakness. Jesus lying in the manger, Jesus dying on the cross, and God working through that to blast a fatal hole in the armour of the enemy that's opposed him since the beginning, and to tear away back through the curtain into the garden. Exodus is painting a picture of the salvation that's offered to each one of us today. It dramatises the fact 
that even something as monstrous as a broken past, something as enslaving as a consistent pattern of proud independence from God, something as twisted and ungrateful as a life that's told the God who made us, either with words or without them, that we just think he's irrelevant. Exodus shows us that these pharaohs in our lives can be challenged and defeated by something as weak as a church service or a song or a Bible verse. If only God would speak through it, causing us to put out our hands and ask, us to, ask him just to draw us up out of the water, out of the mess. Exodus teaches us that God meant every word of what he promised to Abraham back in Genesis. And it illustrates his plan to fulfill that promise. Uh, to, it illustrates what that plan would look like when he came to complete it. Exodus shows us our need. It points us forwards to Jesus. And our prayer as a teaching team as we head into this great book is that God might use it to accomplish these purposes even among us, even here in 21st century Grand Rapids. That people might be liberated from slavery to sin and lifted up out of it to experience his blessing through the work of the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we bless you that you are uh, a God who has communicated in, in a way that's beyond human imagination or capability what it is that you're about. Thank you that you have stood uh, on the canvas of history yourself, uh, that you uh, told the story of what would happen when you came in such lavish detail, uh, full of uh, these things that are so easy for us to relate to because we can picture what it's like to be a, you know, an Israelite enslaved in Egypt and then for you to come and use those illustrations to show us that actually that's all about us and our need and the saviour that we most desperately need. And God, thank you that it wasn't just a, a bunch of stories in the 